Well, hey, we're in a series right now on resilience. We've been talking about what it looks like for us to be resilient. And I don't know about you, but I've been learning so much through what Pastor Brian, Pastor Judah, and Pastor Lance as well have been talking us through, through the book of First Peter. And I love what Pastor Brian said the very first weekend of this series. He said, resilience is the ability to bounce back in the face of adversity. Resilience is the ability to bounce back in the face of adversity. And we've been talking about resilient hope, resilient holiness, resilient righteousness. And today we're going to take it a step further and we're going to talk about resilient love. We're going to take it a step further and talk about resilient love. And when I found out that this was my topic for this weekend, I got excited because resilience is probably something we've heard about before. Love is probably something we've heard about before. We know what they are separately. These two words are separately, but rarely do we know what they mean when they come together. What is resilient love? What is a love that is resilient? What, what is a love that can bounce back in the face of adversity? And when I was thinking about resilient love as, as I was preparing for this message, for some reason, I don't know why, but I was reminded of a movie that I watched growing up. And this movie um, was Princess Bride. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to. But in this movie, the two main characters are Wesley and Buttercup. And as the viewers of this movie, our first thought is we want them to get together, right? We want them to fall in love. We want it to be happily ever after. And we're like, come on! And we're pulling for them. But then we find out in the very beginning of this movie that Wesley dies, and it's really sad. The reason why this was so sad is because for the first part of the movie, first part of their, their lives, Wesley and Buttercup had an interesting relationship. You see, Wesley was Buttercup's servant. And so Buttercup goes up to Wesley so many times and says, hey, I need you to clean the stables. I need you to feed, feed the animals. I need you to clean the house. I need you to do this, 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 and this. And then Wesley's response is a very iconic response, isn't it? He turns to Buttercup every single time and he smiles and he says, as you wish. Every single time, no matter how juvenile the task is, no matter how tough the task is, he says, as you wish. And it was, it was really funny last night, um, my, my wife was here and she turned to me last night and she said, man, I wish you said that to me every time I asked you to do something. <laughs> And I just couldn't help but laugh, <laughs> right? But what if we became a culture? What if we became a society where we said, as you wish, as, someone, as soon as someone asked us to do something? In the story of the Princess Bride, we find out that, that Wesley dies and Buttercup gets really sad because that was her love. Two years later, she's engaged to another man, a prince. We found out that Wesley is in fact not dead and is impersonating a pirate. Very crazy plot line. He comes to Buttercup. He kidnaps Buttercup as a pirate. That's really how you show love, by the way. Kidnap the person you love the most. He kidnaps her and takes her away. And eventually, they, they banter back and forth. Buttercup doesn't know who Wesley is. And then eventually, Buttercup gets fed up, shoves him down a hill. And what does he say? As you wish. As you wish. This relationship is really important for us to look at. It's really important for us to understand because no matter what, Wesley, what Buttercup asked Wesley to do, he said, as you wish. And this leads us to the fill in the blank that's on the app and also on the bulletin, and that's this. Through God's power, we have been made to serve one another. Through God's power, we have been made to serve one another. In order for us to be resilient people, we must be able to serve each other. This is why teams that are united do much better than teams that are not. I want you to think about your work context for a second. Maybe some of you, you work in a context at your job where you work in a team. Let me put forth this scenario. Imagine your boss or whoever's in charge of your team comes up to you and says, hey, there's a deadline you need to get done by Friday. Friday is 
the time you need to get all the spreadsheets done, all the paperwork, all the numbers, get it done by Friday. And it's Monday at this point. And you turn to your team and you're like, man, we need to, we need to get this together. We need to do the right thing. We need to do it quickly. We need to do it right. But what happens if one of your teammates drops the ball? What happens if one of your teammates doesn't do what they're supposed to do and they come up to you and they say, oh, I need help? Well, you have a decision to make in that moment. You either help your team, teammate, and you guys ultimately get done what you're supposed to get done, or you say, you know what, that's your own issue and your team doesn't get done what it's supposed to. You see, we've been made to serve one another. In that moment, the, probably the best decision would be like, okay, I'm going to probably push aside what I have to do right now so that I can serve you and help our team accomplish its goal. We're in the middle of football season right now, aren't we? And one of the most important parts of any football team's offense is the offensive line. Let me tell you why. Because the offensive line's main job is to protect the quarterback or the running back, whomever is in the backfield. For those of you who don't know what a quarterback is, if you heard of a guy named Tom Brady, he's a quarterback. Their job is to protect Tom Brady and other people like him. But the second thing an offensive line does is on running plays, they create holes in the defensive line so that the running back can go through them. See, that's really important because if they do not create a hole, then the running back just runs into his own players and the play kind of looks lame. <laughs> but what happens if an offensive lineman does not do their job and the person who's trying to get through breaks them, shoves them to the ground? Well, they have to communicate on a high level and their other offensive linemen shift over and help them. See, if an offensive line does not communicate, does not work together, does not serve one another, they cannot complete their task. In church today, through God's power, we have been made to serve one another. And so we're going to take a look at this concept in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. So open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. It is page 1016 on the hardback books, uh, Bibles in the seat in front of you. 1 Peter is at the end of the book. Just go in the back and you'll find it in there somewhere. 1 Peter. Start reading in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the, in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. I love what Pastor Lance told us last weekend. He reminded us that when Jesus was born all those years ago, he was born sinless. As soon as he grew up as a kid, as a preteen, as a teenager, even as an adult, he was sinless. So everything he did, did was sinless. I love how Philippians chapter two puts it. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, look, Jesus did not take for granted the fact that he was God. He didn't sit up on his throne in heaven and be like, you know what, I I'm, I'm love being up here. I love watching you guys make mistakes. You know, I'm good. I'm not gonna engage with my people at all. No, he didn't take the fact that he was God for granted. He said, you know what? I love you. <laughs> I love you so much. I care for you so much that I'm actually gonna sacrifice myself. I'm gonna humble myself as a baby so that I can be with you, so that we can be in a relationship. Jesus says, keeps saying in his ministry time, he says, I came not to be served, but to serve. And in order for us to get to a point where we serve one another, we got to follow Christ's example. But Christ didn't live an easy life, did he? He spent 30 years of his life preparing for ministry, and then three of his years was in hardcore ministry. Every day when Jesus woke up during his ministry time, he was faced with adversity. Every single time he woke up, he had people talking to him, trying to discount him, trying to prove him wrong, trying to kill him, trying to plot against him. Every single day, he had someone trying to get at him. You could say that he suffered. And then one day, he suffered the ultimate price. He endured the ultimate pain for us. And so Peter says, look, if Christ suffered 
and we're Christians, we're Christ-like people, then suffering is gonna be a part of our life as well. I believe Peter would even encourage us and tell us to do this. He would say, arm yourselves with the intention to suffer. Arm yourselves with the intention to suffer. And I know initially we look at that statement and we're like, that doesn't sound super awesome. (laughs) This is the first verse. Where are we going? But here's what's really amazing about this idea of suffering. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, rejoice in the midst of suffering. Rejoice in the midst of trial. Why? Because when we experience suffering in our life, because of who we are, because of us following Jesus, by nature, we're being connected to Jesus himself. All right, then bring on the suffering. Because when I suffer, I'm connected to Jesus. I can talk to somebody who understands suffering way more than I could ever. Let's arm ourselves with the intention to suffer. Because when we suffer, we suffer for Christ. And serving one another is not an easy thing. but there's so much joy, there's so much peace in it as well because we're like, yes, this sucks in the moment, but I know God's got a plan in it because he's faithful. Let's continue reading in verse two. Peter says, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past sufficed is for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they ridicule you. Let me ask you this question. Do you ever learn from your mistakes? Maybe think back to when you were a kid, right? And your parents said, don't touch that stove, it's hot. And what do you do? You touch that stove. <laughs> and then you're like, ow, and you start crying. And your parents are like, told you so. And then what do you do the next day? Stove's hot again, you're curious. You touch it. You're not learning. <laughs> but the likelihood of you learning from your mistakes as a kid is higher than as an adult. Why? Because as an adult, we don't necessarily always learn from our mistakes because we know what's best. <laughs> and if we do make a mistake, it's probably somebody else's fault. Because we don't want to own up to our, our problems. We don't want to own up to what we've done wrong because that's not fun. We don't like being in the wrong. And here's what Peter's saying. See, we've got to remember that Peter is writing to Christians that are spread out all over Asia. But not just normal Christians, Christians that have been suffering for years and years. And he's trying to encourage them. And he's reminding them of this simple fact that as Christians, we have been called to be set apart. Because here's what happens. We, before we say yes to Jesus, we make all of these decisions that aren't very healthy for us. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Maybe they hurt us or they hurt other people. We don't really understand that in the moment. Why? Because we don't have a relationship with the Lord. But that's okay. God is still with us and still faithful. And then one day we say yes to Jesus and our lives change, don't they? We're aware of the gospel. We're aware of what Jesus did on the cross. We're aware of the love that we experience every single day and all the decisions we made before don't matter. And Peter's saying, guys, we've made a lot of decisions before that weren't so great, but then we said yes to Jesus and everything changed. And fortunately and unfortunately, as Christians, we're set apart. Let me paint this picture for you. When Peter preached the second best sermon ever preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the church started. Hundreds of people were saved in that moment. Hundreds of people learned about Jesus, started following him, and became a Christian. But before that time, we had 
two categories, the Jewish people and the Gentiles. Those are the only two categories. You walked up to someone, hey, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile? Those are the only two categories really anybody was. And then there was the Samaritans, but nobody really wanted to talk to them, right? So there's the Jewish people and the Gentiles, and Peter's like, you know what? I've got a different way. Let's follow Jesus, because he's our savior. And the Jewish people are over here being like, wait, hold up. You're not following the Bible, the Torah, the Old Testament the way you should. Jesus is not who he says he is. He's not the, the, the savior. I don't know who or what you're talking about. And you're also way too lenient on all these rules that the Bible is very clear about. And then the Gentiles over here are like, wait, what? This Jesus guy died for your sins? How is that even possible? How is it possible for a human being to die for your sins? What are even sins? You guys have way too many rules. You have the Gentiles, you have the Jewish people, and you have Christians in the middle. From both sides, they're being laughed at. From both sides, they're being ridiculed. From both sides, people are not understanding them. And it's, and it's heartbreaking. It makes them feel lonely. It makes them feel unheard. And maybe some of you in here today, you've experienced this where you've been in scenarios at your work or in friends or even at your family where you're like, man, I feel like I'm the only one that even knows you, Lord. And unfortunately, but fortunately, we've been set apart. But I want to tell you some encouraging news this morning after we continue reading in, in verse 5. Peter says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay. I understand. We get, we get ridiculed because we're set apart. It's really hard for us when all of our friends or people around us want to do one thing, but our spirit's like, you know what? I don't feel comfortable. And we say no. And they start making fun of us, laughing at us, saying, I don't understand you. It's hard to be in that moment because of all the feelings I shared earlier. But here's what Peter's saying. What they say about you doesn't matter. I know it hurts. I know your feelings are hurt. I know you're like, ah, oh, this is not what I want to be feeling like right now. I know. But let me tell you, it doesn't matter. Peter says, the gospel matters. See, when we have people not misrepresenting us, not understanding us, making fun of us, it sucks. But in that moment, we got to be reminded of how true the gospel is in our life. Think back to when you first heard the gospel. Maybe you were a teenager, maybe you're a young adult, or maybe it was only a few years ago. What was it like for you to understand and hear the story of this man loving you so much that he died on the cross for you. Think back to the first time that you understood that naturally we're broken, naturally we're filled with sin and we can't avoid it because we're broken people. But there's a man named Jesus who said, you know what, I'm gonna take all of your sin, past, present and future on, on the cross so that you can live in eternity with me. See, that's the good news. <laughs> That's good news. And I believe as Christians, the gospel should be on the forefront of our conversation. Amen. See, when we go to our jobs, when we go home, when we hang out with our friends, we say, man, Jesus loves me. Let me tell you about the Jesus that loves you. Yeah, you may laugh at me. You may, yeah, you may think I'm weird, but guess what? He loves you and he loves me and that's what matters. See, you're... What you think of me, what you call me is not my identity. What he calls me, a loved one, is my identity. See, the gospel changes life. And Peter even gets to a point, he says, look, the gospel is so important that we're even going to preach it to the dead. Wait, hold up. To the dead? Some commentators say it's the... He's talking about the spiritually dead. Others say the physically dead, right? 
I think it's a little bit of both. It's kind of in the middle. Yes. And he's painting the picture of how important it is. You see, our fleshly desires will never last. Those words that people say about us will never last. But the gospel will always be there. And that's good news today, amen? Let's continue reading in verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter does this a lot in his, in his book, 1 Peter. He continuously talks about the end times. Here's why. Because when Jesus was on this earth, he kept saying this phrase that really made people angry. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Kept saying it everywhere. One of the first things he would say when people would sit down to listen to him would be like, hey, guess what? The kingdom of God is at hand. You remember that person that the, the Old Testament prophets kept referring to as the messianic king? This guy was going to come. He was, he was going to be the king over everyone and he was going to make everything right. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, you remember that guy? Yeah, that's me. The kingdom of God is at hand. See, that upset the religious leaders because they're like, you can't say that. The only reason you could say that is if you were actually God. And Jesus is like, you, you said it, not me. <laughs> I, I am the one you've been waiting for. Then Jesus said before he ascended into heaven, he said, look, the Holy Spirit's going to come. It's going to be better for him to leave because he can live within you. And I can be with you all the time because the Holy Spirit is kind and he's a helper. But one day, don't forget, one day I'm going to come back and everything's going to be made right on earth as it is in heaven. It's gonna be beautiful, it's gonna be wonderful, it's gonna make a whole ton of sense, but I'm gonna be back. And he turns to his disciples and he says, I need you guys to preach for me urgency about this. You need to be urgent. Yes, my timing is way better than yours. You will never know when I will come back, but guess what? You need to act like I'm coming and coming soon. And so Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. So now is the time to start actually living up to what God has asked us to do. Let's not wait until we're the proper age. Let's not wait until we're not busy anymore. Let's not wait until the opportune moment to maybe start paying attention to the Lord. But he says, now is the time. The Lord is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And then he tells us two things to do. He says, be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Let me tell you a little something about myself. I am someone who is very bad at being, of having anything to do with multitasking. I cannot multitask to save my life. I, I'm really just terrible at it. If I'm watching a TV show, a sports game, or any sort of movie, and someone tries to have a conversation with me, that ain't happening. No way that's happening at all. In fact, what I have to do is I have to pause the show so that I can pay attention to the person and hear what they have to say. Even if it's about the show, I, I, I gotta do it. I, I, can't, I can't pay attention. My, my brain gets on overload and sensory overload and it, it, everything becomes mush. Unfortunately, my wife is, is learning that when she's trying to talk to me when we're watching something, she has to reach over, grab the emote and pause it. Thankfully, she's filled with grace. She hasn't gotten too upset with me about this. But I think many times in the same way, we fill our minds to the brim, don't we? With work, with family, with busyness, with chores, with things around the house, with kids. We fill our minds with so many different things that the concept of being sober-minded doesn't even make sense. But Peter's saying, look, if we're living like Jesus is about to come back, we got to make some space in our life for him. We got to make some space for us to be aware if he does come back, we know it. And then he says, let's be self-controlled. You know, we uh, just got done with our 40-day fast as a church last Sunday for worship, prayer, and healing. And I love this fast that we do. I think it's really helpful for us in so many different ways. But I've participated in this fast for many years now, and yet 
have I fasted from gluten or dairy? And I'll tell you why. I can't do it. I love dairy. I love gluten. I really love ice cream. And don't even get me started about cheese. And then you melt the cheese and you put it between two pieces of gluten and then you're, it's just heaven. That's, that's what it is right there. And I really hope that God does not call me to fast from gluten or dairy next year. So please don't hold me accountable. Amen? Okay. But if, I, if any of us were fasting from gluten and we walked past a bakery, that would be the worst moment, right? Because you're like, ah, I got to be self-controlled. I can't go into that bakery even though I know it, it's going to taste so good. But so much of our lives are saying no to temptations that we know are unhealthy. We must be able to control ourselves even when it's easy not to. Be sober-minded and self-controlled. They may sound super easy when we think about it, but when we actually apply it to our lives, it isn't easy. And I love how... Peter closes out just this verse. He says, for the sake of your prayers, which reminds me as a believer, I should never stop asking, never stop seeking, never stop knocking and being like, Lord, help me. Help me be sober-minded. Help me be aware of where, what you're doing in my life. Help me be aware of how you're moving in our midst. Lord, help me to be self-controlled because what I love about fasting What's the point of fasting? Is we take something out of our life. Why? So that he can be praised more. We take something out of our life so that when we need or want that thing or have a craving for that thing, we can think about him. Through both being sober-minded and being self-controlled, prayer is in and through it everywhere we go. And now in, in verses eight and nine, Peter really gets to his main point of where he's trying to go with us today. And this is what he says in verse eight. Friends, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without crumbling. I wanna talk to you guys today about a concept of loving at full stretch, loving at full stretch. My wife and I got married about six months ago and we are still in the newlywed stage of our marriage. And for those of you who are married, I want you to think back to that stage and remembering how challenging it was at times and how different it was at times. Why? Because you're living with someone you've never lived with before, right? You're, you're living with somebody that's different than you, that thinks differently than you, that could be messier or cleaner than you, or you fill in the blank. And then you both come in. Unfortunately, they tell you not to have expectations, but you have expectations. And you walk into your marriage and you're like, I thought you would do that. Why aren't you doing that? But my wife and I, I'm so grateful for her and I'm so grateful for our relationship because we're learning with one another how to serve, how to love each other at full stretch. And I think marriage is a perfect depiction of loving at full stretch and what that looks like because the definition of this is love that is stretched to the limits by the demands made on it. You see, loving at full stretch is the type of love where we selflessly care for others and in turn, affection is grown. You see, when we love at full stretch, it means that we care for somebody so much that when we focus on them and love them, a little part of our own self kind of gets broken. But we're okay with that. Why? Because we're serving our person. We're serving our people. We're serving in the way that God has asked us to. Let me give you another example. I went on a mission trip to Haiti when I was over at William Jessup University doing my undergrad. And 
When I first went on this trip, I was really nervous because I'd never been on a mission trip before outside the U.S. or Mexico. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what I was in for, but I'm so glad I went on that trip. We were there for two weeks, and the first week, we were at an orphanage. And so we did VBS. We, did, we served food for them. We hung out with them. We did so many different things for their, their community. It was an amazing time. But one day during the week, we went out to a neighboring village, and we went to another church, and we did very similar things. We did a VBS. We hung out with the kids. We gave them food. It was a really awesome time. But at the end of that day, that service day, the pastor and the other people in the church, they took us about a mile and a half into the wilderness, the forest, uh, to a natural spring of water. I'll tell you what, at the end of a really long week where the temperatures were over 100, we were sweaty, we smelt bad, the first thing we wanted was to be in water like that. And so we were all excited to swim. But before we jumped into the, the spring, the Haitians turned to us and said, hey, look, be careful on the far end of the spring because there's eddies over there because we're sucking water from the spring to the neighboring villages so that they can have fresh water. And we're like, yeah, sure, no problem. We'll pay attention. You know, we're adults. We got this. Well, sure enough, I was not paying attention. And I didn't swim when I was supposed to swim. And the current pulled me into the eddy. And I don't know if you have ever experienced an eddy or seen an eddy before, but it's pretty much a circular current. Just kind of goes like this. Uh, I would say it's like a tornado in water. And they can be pretty powerful if you don't pay attention. In fact, the, the, the deeper an eddy gets, the stronger the eddy gets. And it's much harder to get up on the surface because you don't have the strength. And so I get pulled into this eddy. And the first thing I do is I look around me to try to get out. And I see this concrete wall. It's about 20 feet high. And at the top of it, there's, there's a Haitian man. And all I remember is him looking down at me and just shaking his head. <laughs> I wasn't sure if that was encouraging, or definitely wasn't helpful. But in that moment, I was trying to get out, trying to get out of the eddy, and I couldn't do it. I was weak, I, I was tired, and for some reason, I couldn't get out. It was the craziest thing. And then I start wondering to myself, Okay, Lord, like, I know this is pretty powerful, the fact that I can't even get out. Like, is this it? This can't be it, right? And I'm in that moment, and I'm, and I'm thinking, I'm like, Lord, okay. And then a hand at a corner of my eye reaches out, and it's my friend David. And I grab hold of his hand, and he pulls me out. And still to this day, both David and I, we... We're so confused on what happened in that moment because I couldn't even get out of the eddy myself. And yet David was able to reach out his hand, pull me and him out. Well, it was God, obviously. It was God. And I think that's one of the best examples of loving at full stretch. You see, David sacrificed himself so that he could serve me so that he could help me. And that's what loving at full stretch is. It means that we're sacrificing ourselves for others. But here's the amazing piece of this. You think David reached out his hand because he's like, oh, there's Cliff again. Oh, he's never paying attention. No, I think in the moment he said, you know what, I see a need, I'm gonna meet that need. There's something that happens within us when we get to a point where we love someone at full stretch that we're like, man, that was amazing to care and to love for somebody like that. Man, I, I feel exhilarated because I've sacrificed and I've served them in so amazing ways. For those of you who have been on mission trips, for those of you who have served in the capacity that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable, you know that feeling. And today, church, we have been made to serve one another. We have been designed by God to serve one another. I love what Colossians chapter three says. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love unifies, unifies people. 
Love prevents sins and weaknesses from manifesting themselves. Love is way more powerful than we ever think it can be. Love is the reason why Jesus died on the cross. Love is the reason why he humbled himself as, as a little baby. And love should be the reason we go out and we serve at full stretch, isn't it? The beginning of 1 Peter, he, he reminds us and says, brothers and sisters, we must love one another earnestly from a pure heart because the job as the church is to love one another. Because if we don't love each other, what ends up happening? We have the world, the flesh, and the devil attacking. And what do we do? We can't do anything. Why? Because we're disunified. Why? Because we don't love each other. We're not serving one another. But here's the reality. That isn't easy to love at full stretch in our context. Why? Because we have so many different personalities in this room, don't we? We have the introverts, we have the extroverts, we have the, store, uh, the sports people, we have the book people, we have those who are really smart, those who are not so smart, right? Maybe you've had a conversation with someone within these walls and you walk away from that conversation and you're like, man, that person's annoying. You turn to your, your, your spouse or your friend, you're like, can we sit somewhere else next week? I don't want to run into them again right? But what would it look like for you to love that person at full stretch? You see, I think we get caught up in so many different things that disunify us when at the end of the day, let's just love. Meet each other where we're at and love. See, I think loving at full stretch in our current context means having spiritual tolerance for someone else's faults. Because the reality is, we're all going to fail each other. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. We're going to hurt somebody. And maybe you've been hurt. Or maybe you've hurt somebody. How do you move on from there? Do you just hold on to that grudge? Do you just hold on to that and you guys just never speak again? Or do you have a conversation, you apologize, and you move on? Maybe instead of assuming you know why they act the way they do, maybe you ask them, hey, can you come over? Let's have dinner. Let me serve you so I can get to know you a little bit better. I'll tell you what, that's what the church is supposed to do. That's what us as the church is supposed to do is to serve one another because we got so many things, the world, the flesh, and the devil out there trying to vie for our attention, try to take us away from what Jesus has called us to. But when we are unified as a team, when we're unified as people who love earnestly from a pure heart, nothing can break that. Nothing can break that. Love covers over the wrongs of others. I'm so thankful for that today, amen? Let's see how Peter closes out this passage in verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Again, as good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Corinthians chapter 12 reminds us of what the spiritual gifts are. You see, the Apostle Paul tells us, he's like, these are what the gifts are. And guess what? We all have them. We all have gifts. Because we're created equal but different at the same time, our gifts manifest in different ways. Maybe you have the same gift as the person next to you, but your gift looks a whole lot differently because you're made differently. But that is beside the point. What is the main point, what I want you to hear me right now is this. You have a gift so use it. If you haven't taken a spiritual gifts test, I encourage you to do so. All you need to do is log on to Rabbi Google, type in spiritual gifts test, and boom, there it is. Very easy. I would encourage you to do so. Why? Because in order for us to serve one another, we got to know what we're good at. I tell you what, if you come up to me after service and you're like, all right, all right, pastor, we got to serve people. All right, I need you to serve me. 
Can you help me build a wall in my house? And I will promptly respond without hesitation. I, I will say, I can pray for that wall, but that's about it. I do not know what to do. <laughs> I would not know how to build anything that's remotely a wall. But some of you maybe are really great at that. Or maybe there's a spiritual gift that you're not even aware of that as soon as you see, oh, God has gifted me in prophecy. God has gifted me in healing. God has gifted me in hospitality. Then you start being like, oh, maybe that's how I can serve people. Maybe I start looking out for people who need food. Maybe there's someone that I'm in a a current context with that I can serve them with my gift. See, it doesn't just have to be pastors and people who are on the stage or, or special leaders who have lanyards or any of those type of people that, that do God's work. That's actually our job, to serve with our gifts. Pastors don't have to be the only people that pray for healing. Pastors don't have to be the only people that others come to for advice, others come to for godly counsel. That can be used too. Why? Because God potentially could have gifted you with that. And Peter puts our gifts into two distinct categories. He says, we either speak or we serve. Very simple. Pretty simply put. But if we speak, make sure we're speaking not of our own words, but of God's words. You see, and we we try to do that here at Bridgeway. Every Saturday night and Sunday morning, we have the prayer team come and pray over whomever's preaching. And during that prayer time, we're asking the Lord to speak to us and through us. Because I'm not interested today for you guys to hear Cliff's words. I don't really care about that. What I care about is for you to hear God's words. That's actually what's more important. So maybe you have a gift that involves speaking. Awesome. If God is giving you a word, use it, speak it. But remember, it's not about you. It's not about your words, but it's about his words. About him speaking through you tell you what, when God uses you in that way and when God uses you to encourage somebody and to love on somebody, man, that's such a beautiful thing to be a part of. You know, loving at full stretch can be really hard at sometimes, but it can be really rewarding because you get to be a part of someone's life through their transformation. God says, I need you to go pray for that person. I need you to go smile at that person. I need you to go engage with that person. And because you did that, that person's like, maybe I am loved. Maybe I am going to start thinking about this Jesus guy. Maybe I am going to change the way I live because somebody took the time to care about me. And that's so good. That's such a good feeling. The second category he says is, is to serve. But we shouldn't serve from our own strength. We should serve from his strength. And his energy and his strength never runs out, does it? So what does that tell us today? We should never stop being in a mode to serve. We should never stop serving. You ever heard that phrase in your life? You're like, ah, I'm not on right now. I'm, I'm, just, I'm not on right now. I can't do anything. That should not happen in regards to serving. And then Peter reminds us at the very end, he says, remember, all of these things we're talking about, serving one another, loving at full stretch, we do these things not so that we can be seen, not so that our name can be raised, but so that we can honor our God. So Bridgeway, through God's power, we've been made to serve one another. So what does it look like for you to love at full stretch? What does it look like for you to serve one another? I love what 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us. It's the love chapter, isn't it? It tells us that love does not keep records of wrong. Love does not hold grudges, but love delights in the truth. Love perseveres. These are things that love does. And so what I wanna do to close this out this morning is I want to give you three simple ways on how you can start loving at full stretch right now. Three simple ways. I believe that if we start living these things out in our life, loving at full stretch will come 
like that to us. Very easy. And the first one is simply this. Be available. Be available. One of the most convicting things for me is at, when I look at Jesus' life and what he did on this earth, he consistently had a plan. He was going somewhere, whether it be Galilee, whether it be Bethany, whether it be Capernaum. He always was going somewhere. But even if we had a plan, he was not afraid and he was not frustrated when he got stopped. He wasn't frustrated when he had to turn or make go a different way. And that convicts me because I'm not one of those people that likes those things. If I have a plan, I stick to it. Okay, let's make a plan. Great. We are not diverting from that plan. If we leave the house and our goal is to go grocery shopping, we do not go to Target on the way. <laughs> Does not compute. Okay? But Jesus didn't matter if he was going grocery shopping. didn't matter if he was going to Target. If someone needed love and to be cared for on his way, he took the time. You see, in order for us to love one another, we can't be filled to the brim with our schedules. We've got to make space so that when God has called us to love and to serve, we can be available to do it. Making space so that maybe when we're having a plan, we can be aware of, okay, God, what are you doing? Maybe you go to Target before grocery shopping because you meet somebody new and you have the opportunity to share the gospel with them at Target. Or maybe you, you find a friend that you graduated high school with you haven't seen in years and you got to catch up with them and encourage them and love them. Maybe that's it, but, we're, but maybe we missed that even conversation. Why? Because we're so upset we were missing our plan. <laughs> we got to be available. But when we're available, we're able to see what God's up to. And that's so exciting, isn't it? Making space to be available. Number two, be humble. That is, that is super easy, isn't it? <laughs> In fact, being humble, I, I would argue and say, is probably the hardest thing for Americans, nay, any human being to do, especially in our modern day culture. Because when we're called to be humble, or maybe being humble through loving at full stretch means that when we're in a conversation with someone, the goal is not for us to be right and them to be wrong, but for them to be heard. But instead, we force our own agenda. We force our own opinions. Why? Because we always want to be right. Or maybe being humble says, ah, oh, I did mess up in this area. I'm sorry. Or maybe in order for us to love at full stretch, maybe we think less of our own plans and start realizing that there's somebody else in our life that maybe... They have an opinion. Our loved one, our spouse, our, our, our siblings, our friends, our coworkers, maybe instead of forcing our own agenda, we start thinking, oh, maybe there's other people in this world. Maybe God's asking us to take a step back. It isn't easy. Or maybe, here's my last example of this, maybe being humble means setting aside your little problem so that you can go and help a friend's big problem. Whew, that was good. I'm going to say it again. Maybe being humble means setting aside your small problem so that you can help a friend or a loved one with their big one. That doesn't mean you don't care about your, your problem. That doesn't mean that your problem doesn't exist or that your feelings for it don't matter. No, that's great. Maybe, maybe we put it aside for a second and your feelings are totally valid. Let's put it aside for a second and then we can come back to it when the time's right. So the first one is be available. The second one is be humble. And the third one is take action. Take action. We could talk about all these things that we've talked about today. But if we get to the point where God has given us an opportunity to serve or to love at full stretch and we don't take it, then what's the point? What is the point? But we get in those situations, don't we, where we get awkward and we know the Holy Spirit is tapping on our heart and saying, hey, I need you to do this for me. And we're like, ah, that's going to make me feel weird. They're gonna, I'm going to feel embarrassed. They could laugh at me, all, all this stuff. 
But remember, at the end of the day, if the gospel is proclaimed, that's what matters. If love is proclaimed, that's what matters. If you act in love, that's what matters. Because we know that love is not just words. If somebody comes up to you and says, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I'm inclined to believe you, but guess what? Love is more than just words. It's an action. And that's the biggest cliche and the biggest truth I could ever say. In order for us to love at full stretch, we got to see the opportunity, be available for the opportunity, have humility for the opportunity, and actually take that action. But when we do, oh man, we get to be a part of a transformation that we could never ever have dreamed of just by saying yes. And church today, through God's power, we have been made to serve one another. So let me encourage you and care for you and love you and say this. You're gifted in so many different things. God loves you so very much. He died for you. Let's go bring that good news in our actions and our words to everyone else. Can we do that? Amen. I'm going to pray for you. Father, you are so, so good to us. You're so kind. And so, Father, I just pray right now that you search our hearts and take any form of pride that is not of you. You fill that with your humility. You fill that with your peace. God, open up our eyes to the areas of our life where we need to serve in a bigger capacity. Open up our eyes, Lord, where we need to make space to be more aware of what you're doing in our lives so that we can love at full stretch. Lord, we know it's not easy. Lord, we know... It's going to take some work, but God, with you, anything is possible. With you, we can move mountains. With you, we can love people even if they don't love us back. With you, we can do things that can change the world. And Lord, through the people in this room and watching online, we can love at full stretch. God, I pray that you unify us in only the ways you know how. I pray that you connect us to you every single day. And Father, go before us and prepare the way for us and open up our eyes even this week where we can serve for your glory, Lord, not our own. We love you, God. In your name we pray. Amen.